4, Jeremiah 31. Perhaps you have the same heading in your Bibles, uh, a new covenant, for that is the nature of this prophecy in Jeremiah 31. We start reading at verse 27. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it will come about that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbour and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Would you then turn, please, to... 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll read verses 4 through to 18, which is the text for the sermon, and then I'll read from the Westminster Confession. 2 Corinthians 3, from verse 4. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. 
Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And then if you look in your bulletin, you should find a uh, copy there of the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, articles 4 to 6. Article 4. The covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Article 5. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. And then Article 6, under the Gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is, dis is dispensed are the preaching of the Word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that in our pride we do not readily receive counsel. We don't receive it very well. Your word gives us your counsel and your guidance. And so, Father, we pray that you would enable us to receive it humbly and to act upon it. And where that teaching is more difficult, will you cause us to put effort into understanding, to taking it in by working with the text, but also 
by uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture and by seeking the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, I guess we're all very much aware that the there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you can sense that as you're reading from different parts of the Bible. A difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In chapter 7, the Articles 5 and 6 of the Westminster, uh, they give us a summary of those differences while making it very clear that there's only one covenant of grace, but it's in two different administrations or dispensations. And what we have here on this in the Westminster is very, only a very brief summary. But if you want to learn more about, about those differences, there's a whole lot more than mentioned in the Westminster. But if you want to learn more about it, uh, one of the most helpful things I've come across on that is in Calvin's Institutes. And uh, if you can get hold of a copy of that and you want to follow this up, uh, Book 2, Chapters 10 and 11 uh, deal with the similarities, the continuity between the Old and New Covenant, and then also with the differences. So you get both of those in different chapters in uh, Book 2 of the Institutes. Uh, not Volume 2, but Book 2, which is in Volume 1, if you have a two-volume set. Um, I have used, to try and explain this in the section of the outline for the children, I used the illustration of cars, uh, in particular uh, Corollas, and that's not because uh, I want to commission or anything like that from Toyota, uh, it's because I, um, I used to have a Corolla probably and I'm a little more familiar with uh, some of the different uh, variations they have on those over the years. And uh, I gave that illustration to try and point out how you can have one model that is produced in different forms. Uh, Twelve generations or whatever it is of the uh, Corolla over the years since the 60s. Uh, 12 generations with numerous redesigns and variations in each of those. And like many advances in technology, what you find with these things is that later models may either add or sometimes take away from something that was in an earlier model. They may either simplify something or at times they make it more complicated, all of it around some basic design. So we read of an administration, or we could, we could even say a ministry. There is a ministry of the Old Covenant, according to Article 5, and Article 5 lists the features of that particular model with its Old Testament promises and prophecies and Old Testament sacraments and the types or foreshadowings of various kinds, uh, Melchizedek and such types in the Old Testament, ceremonial laws, civil judicial laws, all of that pointing ahead to the Christ to come. While Article 6 tells us about the administration, or if you want to say it this way, the ministry, the features of the New Covenant model, with its focus on preaching, New Testament sacraments as well, which proclaimed not the Christ not just the Christ who is to come, but it does that too. The Lord Jesus is still to return, but which proclaims Christ as the one who has already come in fulfilment of the Old Testament. Uh, something that involved, as the Westminster points out, 
uh, more simplicity in the new covenant, in the way that's ministered, that's presented, less outward glory than what you find with, say, the temple or the priesthood or the ceremonies of the Old Testament. And yet, despite that simplicity, more fullness of the truth and more effectiveness also in the bringing of that to God's people in this covenant of grace. And that really sums up neatly, I think, the two different administrations. It covers the main points of the differences between the two administrations of the covenant. But, of course, the Bible doesn't stop there with that. The Westminster is only a summary. And the Bible gives us a lot more detail. Even the passage we're looking at today doesn't give us the whole picture. It focuses on some aspects of the differences between the two covenants. But it is important for us to learn these things and not to stop with 2 Corinthians 3, not to stop with the Westminster Summary in chapter 7 or even with Calvin's Institutes if you take the trouble to read that, but to keep studying the Scriptures and growing in your knowledge and understanding of the, of the covenant in its Old Testament administration and the new. These things are important and it's important to learn those differences because failure to do so can very easily lead to a whole raft of other problems. In fact, the uh, issue that comes up a lot these days, the issue of infant baptism. That denial of infant baptism is something that has arisen out of a failure to understand how the old and the new covenant work together and what is different and what is the same. Dispensationalism a view that divides up the whole Bible into very, very different eras with pretty much different rules and plays down the, the unity uh, between the whole, in the whole of the Scripture. Dispensationalism arises out of a failure to understand these things. Antinomianism, being against law, saying it's all about grace and we don't need to worry about the law, comes out of a failure to understand what is the same and what has changed in between the Old and New Covenant. And even as you find in some churches today, there can be a wholesale neglect of the Old Testament, not even bothering to read it or hear it preached about or study it, because that's just the Old Testament, as you sometimes hear it said. Again, out of a failure to understand these very things. Two points as we look at this passage then with that in mind. First of all, the old administration and secondly, the new administration. The old and the new. In the first place then, the old covenant, which is described first in our passage as a ministry of the letter, meaning the letter of the law. Often when we use that expression, it's a common expression in English, the letter of the law, and usually when we use it, we mean it in a kind of a negative way. As if to say that there's a person here who's being a legalist, a stickler for every fine point, every jot and tittle of the law, we say such a person is really focusing on the letter of the law as some kind of insult. Or sometimes we mean someone who's sticking to the technicalities but they're ignoring the spirit of the law. Again, meant in a rather negative way. Well, this expression that we read here isn't anywhere near so negative as that, though it sounds it. You read verse 6 and it talks about the letter that kills. 
And that sounds very negative. Especially when compared with the spirit who brings life, that's a good thing, that's positive, bringing life, and the letter kills, how can that be a good thing? But this whole text is saying that the old covenant is only like this by way of comparison to the new. That there's an emphasis in the old and there's an emphasis in the new covenant rather than saying as an absolute statement, that's all the old covenant ever does, it just kills. It's not saying that. What the apostle means then is simply that the letter of the law alone cannot create obedience to the law or bring us salvation because it was never designed for that. That which is carved in stone, like the Ten Commandments, is an external thing that in itself does not overcome the hardness of the sinner's heart, the internal problem of the sinner. Certainly we have to say that the law is spiritual. After all, the law comes from the hand of God. It must be spiritual. It must be a good thing. The law is spiritual, but it doesn't get through to stone hearts. And by itself, it was not designed to do that. Some uh, use then of these uh, promises and uh, prophecies and types and sacraments, the same actually should be said with them, ultimately, that in the Old Testament you could read all these promises, prophecies and types and you could sit under the sacraments of the Old Testament, uh, which also pointed to Christ, but they didn't get through either if that's all that people did was sit there and not have it applied internally. If they didn't have those things breaking through their stone hearts. The problem in that was not the Old Testament. Whether the Old Testament law or the Old Testament gospel, because the gospel is in the Old Testament, the problem was not with the Old Covenant, the problem was with the sinner. Uh, Car models may indeed have problems and sometimes a later model will try and iron those things out and solve those problems. But God's old covenant was not something that was flawed and filled with problems that he then later corrected, corrected problems in the work that he had done and what he had given, not at all. But rather he brought that time of the law of that old covenant to an end. He brought that to an end and replaced it with uh, some other elements, keeping the law going, not replacing it so much as adding other elements into it to celebrate the coming of his son into this world. What the law in the Old Testament could do, though, was to inform those who had heard what God had required to uh, inform them about the punishments, about the requirements and the punishments that they deserved for their disobedience. And that gave them less excuse. They had more knowledge of what was required, more accountability. More information also from God's law to give the hard-hearted, to give the wicked a few more ideas on how they could actually sin against God because the law does that as well. It excites uh, sin in those who are dedicated to wickedness. Uh, I wouldn't have considered taking a cookie from the tray if mother hadn't have said, don't touch the cookies while I'm out that kind of thing. And it's for that reason that this passage tells us that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, 
involved a ministry of condemnation. Condemnation by the law of God, verse 9, in comparison to the new covenant. Because it was a ministry of condemnation, it was also a ministry of death, verse 7. Because the letter of the law pronounced the penalty of death on anyone who didn't keep the law perfectly. The death was caused by man's sin, not by the law. The law simply pronounced that penalty. Now, there are many things you know that can uphold life if they're used properly, but which can also give death if they're not used properly. For example, something as simple as water. Uh, Water can sustain life, a good thing for you to drink, but there are certain circumstances where, for example, if you drink too much of it, uh, quite a few litres of it as a matter of fact, but if you force yourself to drink enough of it, it can do you a lot of harm. And uh, similarly, if you surround yourself with enough of it, especially if you can't swim, uh, drowning also not uh, very healthy for us. Uh, That's another thing, another abuse of water in a way that uh, can lead to death. And so the problem is not with the law if it's used rightly. But if it's not used rightly, if it's abused, then there's a problem. Yet despite all that, there was still much glory associated with the Old Testament law, as verses 7 to 11 tell us. They show us that the law was good and it also had with it a certain glory. After all, it was written by the finger of God, by the finger of the God of glory. And who could have stood at the foot of Mount Sinai while the law was being given and not seen the glory of it as God gave the Ten Commandments to his people amidst all those signs on the top of the mountain? And Moses' face reflected that glory, so much so that the sinful people of Israel couldn't bear that And Moses had to veil his face at times. Moreover, that glory reflected in the face of Moses was a fading glory. But it only seemed to have no glory when compared to the gospel. Again, this is not an absolute difference. It's a matter of comparison. And by comparison, the the gospel has surpassing glory. Verse 10. Uh, to go back to uh, my old uh, Corolla, uh, which I owned in the very end of the 70s, as I recall. At the time, I thought it was a pretty good car. But I'm sure if I put it side by side today with a modern Corolla, uh, I know which one I'd rather have. And so with the old covenant, it was the right thing for the time. It was good. But the glory, the surpassing glory, is in the new covenant as verse 10 says. The glory was there in the Old Testament law, but the problem was that it didn't benefit many in Israel because of their hardness of heart. It was not, again, it was not the fault of the covenant, but of the people. That said, there were some who benefited. Uh, The Messiah was definitely revealed in the Old Testament according to that Old Covenant way. He was revealed in the law, he was revealed in the promises of the Old Covenant, the types, the sacrifices, the the Passover, circumcision, as Article 5 in the Westminster says. And the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. 
And so when that word, that presentation of Christ in that Old Testament way was accompanied by the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament, that was sufficient to grant a true faith in the Messiah to come. And because of what he would do back in those Old Testament times, those people who looked to him were forgiven, forgiven of their sins, and they were saved. But there were many others, sometimes even whole generations of that Old Testament church who did not receive that work of the Spirit, who had hardened their hearts against God and his word. And the key factor, you see, was the extent of the Spirit's work with the word. Not some flaw in the old covenant, but God's purpose for the development of his covenant. That is why God produced and gave a new covenant, a new administration of the one covenant. As I mentioned, to celebrate uh, the sending of his son into the world, which was uh, one of the main differences between the old and the new covenant. Our second and final point, the new administration. This was done by the Lord in order to bring a more extensive, a deeper and a more effective and a more glorious work among his people. And the key to that, as I mentioned, is the work of the Holy Spirit, who was poured out in the New Testament at Pentecost to give that more extensive and that deeper operation within the hearts of God's people at large. That was prophesied by Joel 2, verse 28 and 29, that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, other verses as well. And that's why we find this contrast in verses 6 to 8 between the letter that kills and the Spirit who gives life. And indeed, the Spirit is mentioned in this chapter seven times. The Spirit is mentioned not as being opposed to the law. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 uh, really, makes it, really rules that out as if the Spirit would be somehow opposite to and opposed to law, the law of God as such. In fact, Jeremiah 31 verse 33 says that in the New Covenant, one of the main things the Spirit would do would be to put the law on the hearts of God's people. That shows us that the law is a good thing and that it still operates in the New Covenant and that the Holy Spirit is not opposed to the law. Jeremiah 31, a most important passage. But the point is that the law alone was never designed to overcome hardness of heart amongst God's people in Israel. His plan was to pour his spirit out in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, uh, in order not to replace the law in some way, but to add to what he'd already given in the law with a greater superabundance, so that now that law would be put on people's hearts to a greater degree than it was in the Old Testament. Now, before you think this uh, emphasis is giving too much attention to the Holy Spirit while ignoring the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me make it very clear that this superabundant work of the Spirit could not have possibly happened if the Lord Jesus had not first come and completed his work on the cross and then sent forth his Spirit. This is actually one of the, I would say this is the most fundamental difference between the old and the new covenant is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he did. 
the old covenant was characterized by the promise of his coming, coming. The new covenant is characterized by the fulfillment of those promises through the Lord Jesus. But part of that fulfillment was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So that by his pouring out, after the finished work of the Lord Jesus, the work of Christ would be applied more extensively to the people of God. In fact, the unity and the closeness of the work of the Son and the Spirit is seen in verses 17 to 18, which speak of the Lord and the Spirit in the same breath, even to the point of saying, the Lord is the Spirit. The result of that new covenant ministry is then one that because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ stresses righteousness, verse 9, rather than condemnation for lawbreakers, again, by comparison. The reason for that is that the righteousness of Christ, having been accomplished by his work in the new covenant, was then counted as belonging to so many more covenant people compared to the effect in the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit also imparts that righteousness in a greater way than in the Old Testament, bringing sanctification to so many more people in this present time. And it is called a ministry of life, verse 6, for the same reason, in comparison to the Old Covenant, a ministry of life, again, because of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Because members of the covenant are not now uh, cursed with death for rejecting the law, but they are given new life by the Holy Spirit who creates faith, faith that joins us to the Lord Jesus, so that we receive that work of Christ, his resurrection life now operates within us in a greater degree than it ever did in the Old Testament. Even the word covenant in the New Testament, as in this passage, refers to a last will and testament, with Christ as the testator. Uh, the one who's made the will and who has left in his will a legacy, a bequeathing, an inheritance, and that inheritance is life, eternal life in a covenant of life. The new covenant is also characterized by greater glory than the old covenant. Look at the references to the uh, veiling or the fading of the glory of the Old Covenant in verses 7, 11, 13, 14, and 16. The literal veil on Moses' face was paralleled by a spiritual veil on the hearts of sinful Israel. And that veiling of the heart was still operating in the lives of many Jews, even at the time that Paul wrote these words. For they had hardened their hearts against the Christ who was already revealed in the Old Testament. But the abundant work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant means that so many more have had that veil removed than was the case in the Old Covenant. And they have come to know the Lord Jesus through the work of His Word and Spirit. They are then freed from condemnation and from guilt and from the power of sin and not only are they freed from those things, but they and we also 
are given instead a greater boldness and openness in our relationship with God and also a boldness to proclaim the truth of God, as verse 12 says, than was the case in the Old Testament because of that more extensive work of the Spirit. So that far from having to hide things, as Moses had to hide behind a veil, far from having to veil that glory, we're able now not to hide but to come out openly, even more openly than in the Old Testament, and to speak these things boldly. To tell people that we behold the very glory of God in Christ. Even though, as in a sense, and as this passage says, we do so in a mirror, we don't see the, the glory of Christ face to face yet, but nevertheless, we know the glory of the Lord and we can tell other people about that. We know also that God's people are being transformed more and more into that glorious likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that the time will come and we, we come and we await it when that we will see that glory face to face in the next life. And this glory, the glory that we know in this new covenant, does not fade. It doesn't have to be veiled. It doesn't fade. It's not temporary. In fact, it grows and it grows and grows on into the next life. No wonder the Apostle says that in this administration of the new covenant, it abounds in glory by comparison much more than the glory of the old covenant. And uh, that's uh, said in verses 9 to 11. Now, uh, perhaps you're thinking that this is all very well, this technical information on the old covenant and the new covenant and their differences. Uh, a little bit like if somebody gave me uh, a few uh, technical manuals on the differences between Corollas from the late 70s and Corollas today and with my uh, knowledge and abilities in mechanical things I would look at that no doubt and say well that's very nice thank you nice to, nice to know that and then uh, proceed to ignore it I'd be more interested probably in driving the car than I would in looking at the technical manual but here we are not looking at stuff that is merely technical data and I would suggest to you that these things, though they may be difficult, they are far more crucial than that. And not simply because of potential errors that can come from misunderstanding, though I mentioned that before, but also because we need to recognise the enormous privilege of living in a time, as God's people, living in a time when the Lord Jesus has actually come and finished his work. And the enormous privilege of living in a time when the Holy Spirit is not just active as he was in the Old Testament, but has been poured out in this new covenant. Poured out in a way that is able to take these truths about the Lord Jesus and put them on our hearts in a far more extensive way than was usual in the Old Testament. And not only that we recognise those differences, but also that we are thankful for them that we put those differences, what we learn of those differences, to use in gratitude, in thankfulness. That we are thankful that we live under a better covenant. Not that it was bad to live under the old covenant, but that it is even better to live under the new covenant. And it's a blessing that God has placed us in that time. 
and to use these truths also for examining ourselves to be sure that we are, we are actually living out of the differences. In thankfulness, that's one way, but also by examining ourselves to see if we are in fact treating God's word, treating his law, uh, treating the promises as something more than mere letter. That we are actually treating these things as that which lies, truly lies upon our hearts. Uh, whether we speak of God's law or whether we uh, speak of uh, the gospel. But either way, those things are truly upon our hearts because we can say that we are, we can truly say that we are receiving the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are truly walking according to his word and also walking according to his, in his spirit. Uh, truly undergoing that transformation that we talked about. That we don't just say, well, the new covenant is a time when God's people receive even more transforming power by the completed word, the completed work of Christ, the completed word of God, having that in our hands and having that outpouring of the Holy Spirit so all God's people can enjoy greater transformation into the likeness of Christ. Not only that we can say that, but that it is actually true of us that we can look at our lives and say that we are progressing in that transformation into the likeness of Christ from glory to glory. So that we can then say that we are members of a new covenant, not just in name, but also in spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you... Grant that our approach to your word, uh, the whole of your word, Old and New Testament, both law and gospel, that these things may be held by us not as a matter of mere externalism. Father, will you work in us with your word and your spirit so that we may believe with a whole heart. Again, that we may believe the truth of the promises and the importance of the commands. But Father, above all, that we may know you, truly know you through the Lord Jesus, rather than merely knowing about you. We pray it in his name. Amen. The promises of the old covenant have been fulfilled by the coming of the Lord Jesus in the new covenant Sold to him nor 333 stanzas 1 to 3. We'll stand to sing it, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 333 stanzas 1 to 3.
After the blessing is our doxology, we sing from number 280 in the Psalter Hymnal, stanzas 1 and 3. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs> 